Welcome to Freedom this morning. Again, we're glad you're with us. We are in the first Sunday of Advent, which means we're officially in the build-up to Christmas. Who has all of their Christmas shopping done? Okay, there are a few of you. Well done. Um, I could give you my lists if you wanted to continue the shopping. Actually, no, I would need my children to give me their lists. No pressure. Okay, great. Just going to put that out for all the world to hear. Children, Christmas lists. Thank you. Bless you. Okay, great. Christmas is so much more than gifts and trees and decorations, although we enjoy all of those things and there's nothing wrong with them. We come as a body of believers to celebrate the birth of our Savior. And at Freedom, we celebrate Advent. Now, Advent was not something, I think I've shared this before, it was not something I celebrated or was familiar with before I came to Freedom. And so I had to figure out what it was. And so lucky you, you get to learn what I learned. So the word Advent comes from a Latin word meaning coming. And scholars believe that during the 4th and 5th centuries, um, this was a a season of preparation for the baptism of new believers um, or new Christians at the January Feast of Epiphany. So during the time of Advent, Christians would take 40 days and they would pray and there would be penance and fasting and they would be preparing for this celebration of the baptism of new believers. By the 6th century, aren't you so glad you came for a history lesson today? By the 6th century, Roman Christians had tied Advent to the coming of Christ, but not the coming of Christ that we celebrate today, not the baby in the manger, but the second coming when Jesus returns for his church. And it wasn't until the Middle Ages that the the Advent that we celebrate today began to take shape. That's when it became clearly linked to Christmas, to the baby in the manger, to the waiting and expectation of Jesus coming uh, as a baby to earth. Uh, The most common Advent tradition comes out of the Middle Ages, which is candles. As you can see, we have our Advent wreath here with five candles. Uh, We have lit one this morning. We lit the hope candle. So the four candles, if you don't know, they represent represent four different um, aspects of celebration. So we have hope, faith, love, and peace. And uh, actually, sorry, joy. I got it wrong. Different traditions, different focuses. Hope, love, joy, peace. That's what we do. And then in the middle, we have the Christ candle that we typically is lit on Christmas Day, but we light it here on Christmas Eve. And so that's what Advent is. It's a time of preparing our hearts to celebrate the birth of Jesus. It's a celebration of hope and restoration and a reminder that we are people that wait. The Bible tells us about waiting. The Israelites waited for their promised land. Uh, The Israelites were waiting for the Savior. There is a lot of waiting in Scripture. If you've never looked at it, there is a lot of waiting. So if you're in a period of waiting, you are not alone. There is a lot of waiting in Scripture. And the Bible tells us of two people specifically who spent some time waiting, and that's who we're going to talk about today. And they are Simeon and Anna. Uh, They are not a married couple. They're just always linked together, their names in the Bible, just so for clarity's sake. Uh, I always link them together, and I always think they're married and they're not. So I'm just going to relieve all of you of that thought if you had the same one I did. We find their story in the book of Luke when Jesus was brought to the temple to be dedicated and presented to the Lord. So let's read together. You can follow along in the YouVersion app uh, under events and more, or scripture will be on the screen, or you can use a real-life Bible right in the seat pocket in front of you if you want to. We're going to read uh, starting Luke 2, starting at verse 22. Actually, on verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was... 
named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the land, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations." a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The Lord's father, uh, sorry, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said to him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to mother, to Mary his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. When Mary and Joseph had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee in their to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Simeon was waiting for hope. The Lord had granted him the privilege of seeing the Messiah in his lifetime. Simeon prayed when he saw Jesus. He said, you can take my life now. I have seen the fulfillment of the promise. I have seen everything I was waiting for. My time has come. There is no more for me on this earth. I read the scripture and I wonder, do you think, was there ever a moment when Simeon saw the child and was surprised? Like, oh, this, this child is the one that's going to be the savior. We don't read about it. Luke doesn't mention it, so maybe not. But it was a child. This child was the savior of the world. This child was what Simeon had been waiting and praying and hoping for for all these years. And he doesn't seem surprised. It's not in there at all. Actually, Mary and Joseph seem more surprised than Simeon does of anybody. They're deeply confused by this, even though an angel had appeared to them. But that's another story for another time. The way Luke depicts this story is that it was just exactly how it was supposed to be. Simeon recognized the Savior had come. It wasn't loud declaration from angels as as uh, Jesus was brought in, there was no awe moment. There weren't, Mary and Joseph weren't walking in saying, it's okay, everybody, he's here, and held him up like a Simba moment from the Lion King. There doesn't seem to be any of that. It just is quiet obedience to what they had been called to do, walking in and recognition of who was before them. And I believe that's because Simeon understood what it had meant to wait on the Lord. Simeon spent his whole life waiting for hope. In verse 25, it says, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. The consolation of Israel is another way of saying he was waiting for the Messiah because the Messiah was believed to come and restore Israel to its rightful place of peace. And the difference between Simeon and the rest of the Jews, because lots of Jews met Jesus and didn't recognize him for what he was, the difference was that Simeon was waiting and he was full of the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 25 says the Holy Spirit rested on him. Verse 26 says the Holy Spirit showed things to him. And verse 27 says the Holy Spirit moved him. Simeon was full of the Holy Spirit, and that changed everything for him. The Greek word used for Simeon's waiting is one I am not going to pronounce, but it means to receive oneself or to express an eagerness to welcome. It indicates that Simeon wasn't wasting time waiting. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a waiting of excruciating endurance, but of active anticipation. He was actively anticipating the coming of the Messiah. It was more like the excitement of waiting to open a gift on Christmas and more like waiting for a root can, less like waiting for a root canal, right? It was that active anticipation. You know that feeling. Remember, like, think about kids at Christmas on Christmas morning when they wake up and they just want to go down the stairs and open the presents because they know something great is coming. That is how Simeon was waiting for the Lord. He knew something so good was coming. Active anticipation is how we are called to live our life for the things of God. Waiting for something good to come. And then we read about Anna. She is called a prophet, one of only five prophets that are called women, or five women that are called prophets in the Bible. Her life wasn't easy. She was a widow for many years. We read that. And I'll remind you that being a widow in the Old Testament was not easy, or in the New Testament wasn't easy. I don't know if she was from a wealthy family, but if she wasn't, she, her life would have been dire. She wouldn't have had uh, someone to care for her. It wasn't like she could just go get a job and care for herself. Her life would have been difficult and hard, and yet she took what was hard, and she dedicated it to the Lord. Waiting on him was the practice of her life. Her reward was waiting for her, though, when she laid eyes on Jesus. Anna also seemed to recognize Jesus for who he was with no fanfare. And I believe that's because she had a practice of waiting on the Lord. And so she could see what the Lord had put before her. Her long years of widowhood were effective years of worship and servanthood and sacrifice. She did not waste the time that was given to her. Her life was not wasted. Her life may not have looked like what she wanted it to be. I'm pretty sure, I mean, I never met Anna personally, but I'm pretty sure that she didn't think, oh, I'm married, I'm gonna have children, my life is so great, I hope it ends early so I can spend my life in the temple dedicating it to the Lord. That probably wasn't the desires of her heart when she was young and married and entering into all that God had for her, and yet that's where she found herself. And so she chose to make it meaningful and to make it count. It might not be what she had wanted, but it wasn't wasted. It's not that Anna's and Simeon's life were easy. It's that they were dedicated to the Lord no matter what came their way. They knew what they had been called to. They loved the Lord. They believed beyond reasonable hope that he had something better for them. They lived lives above reproach. They surrendered their present and their futures, and they were led by the Holy Spirit. That's the example of Simeon and Anna in Scripture. And so I say life goals. Be like Simeon and Anna. Let's go home, right? Good. Let's, let's live up to that example. But it's not that easy, is it? Simeon and Anna were not perfect people. Their lives were not perfect, and neither are we. One commentator said this about them, grace most often appears when we have no resources of our own to meet the need. And isn't that true? Simeon and Anna could not make the Savior appear before them. They could not make the fulfillment of that promise happen. It was outside of their ability. But they hoped for a better future, understanding the promise that was given to them. 
The Jewish people were hoping for the return of their promised land. At this time, they were not in control of the land of Canaan that had been promised to them. They were living uh, as foreigners in, a, in another land. They were occupied by another nation. They were not in control of their own people. Their sin and disobedience had separated them from their land. Their religious practices, their life, everything was influenced by outside religions, by politics, by power, by money, by greed. Does it sound familiar to you? The life of the New Testament church is actually very similar to the life we live today. They were living in a world full of lost people that were waiting for hope. Hope for a physical and political rescue and restoration. They were hoping for their king to come and vanquish all their enemies and do away with all of their foes and restore the kingdom to its former glory. That's what they were waiting for. And maybe Anna and Simeon were hoping for that too. I, I don't know. But they were able to shift what they thought they wanted to see what God was actually providing for them. They were able to see the miracle put in front of them, though it looked very, very different than what they thought it would bring. Jesus the baby that was born in the manger was the hope they were waiting for. The child brought to the temple would bring peace that no one was expecting. He would bring better peace than an established physical kingdom. He would bring spiritual peace to their souls. Peace not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Did you catch that in what Simeon was reading? It was for us too. It wasn't just for the Jewish people. The peace that Jesus brought, the hope that he brought, was for every single person that draws breath. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's us. Jesus was the light for us. He came for us. And the glory for your people Israel. Fully man and fully God, Jesus went willingly to the cross to die on our behalf, offering love beyond reason. Our Savior who rose from the grave and conquered death brings peace to our souls like nothing else can. Jesus is our eternal hope and our salvation. Salvation, I love this definition. I'm not smart enough to claim it as my own. Salvation is a present reality and a promise of final deliverance. Do you understand that that is what we have in Christ? We have immediate salvation in Jesus and forgiveness of sins, and we have a future promise of deliverance. We live in what we like to call the here and now and the not yet kingdom. Fully rescued. We are fully rescued. We are fully forgiven. We are fully set free in Jesus. And yet we are people that are still waiting for hope. Today, uh, today we live like Anna and Simeon. We have our eyes open to see what is right in front of us. Our present reality of safety and security in Christ and the promise of final deliverance is still coming. Hope is anticipating a future that is better than our present. Every follower of Jesus can lay claim to the hope of a future that is better than your present. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This hope is confident expectation of the life to come. 
It is living. That means it's growing in us. It's becoming more and more. It's increasing. We possess a living hope that no matter what we face, no matter what's going on in our life, we have hope for a future that is better than our present. And that's really hard to say sometimes. It's really hard to say sometimes. I don't say this flippantly to say, oh, you shouldn't be sad. Life's not hard. You have a hope of a future. I say that with tears in my eyes, walking beside people that are hurting, saying, this is so hard. But you have a hope that is better than your present circumstance. And that is what we cling to when life is hard. Some of you are saying, actually, Aaron, I'm living my best life right now. I have never been better. Maybe there's some of you in this room. I hope there is. I am satisfied in my job. My kids are doing really well. Life is just everything I hoped it would be. And bless you in that, if that is true. I have grandkids, and I love them, and they love me. I'm living my very best life. And I say to you, you have hope for a future that is better than your present. Consider that. Consider the best version of your life. What could you hope life could be? If you could just visualize right now the very best life you could ever ask for. And then understand that your future is even better than that vision. That is the hope that we cling to. It doesn't matter what our life looks like right now. It matters that we have something so much better coming. We have an inheritance that can never spoil or fade. It is eternal. And we won't possess it while we walk here on this earth. That is waiting for us in eternity with Jesus. It's a future promise beyond the hope of the gifts we have already received because we have received good gifts here on this earth and we have even better gifts waiting for us someday. The New Testament regularly uses inheritance to refer not just to an earthly inheritance but to a believer's share in the heavenly kingdom, our heavenly future reward. The Old Testament spoke about the promised land as Israel's inheritance often talked about possessing the land of Canaan as their inheritance. And the contrast is striking. We have been born new in Jesus, not to obtain a family inheritance on earth or to, like the people in the Old Testament, were hoping to obtain Canaan. Our inheritance is the eternal city of God. Our inheritance is to be part of the new creation when Jesus returns for his bride. We have security and joy of our current salvation, and we have hope for future glory. And our, internal, our eternal inheritance is so much better than anything we have on earth or anything that we could imagine. It's better than a portion of land. It's better than a full bank account. It's better than anything we could imagine. This new living hope is our inheritance forever. We are not waiting for a Messiah to come. We are not hoping to be rescued. We are rescued. We are living as people who have been rescued. Jesus has come. He has made the way for forgiveness of sin for you. He has set you free from everything that holds you up. You are not waiting to be rescued. You have the ability today to be completely rescued. We are waiting for that future promise. We walk in a broken world but we walk as people with hope in Christ. The psalmist beautifully describes how we long and wait in Psalm 135. 
He says, I will wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Have you ever worked a night shift? My son works night shifts. Have you ever worked a a night shift and you just are waiting for that shift to end so you can go home and go to bed? Everything in you is like, I am so tired. I cannot do this anymore. Go get your own McChicken double thingy. I don't know. That longing, that hope that I need this to end, I can't serve one more coffee. It's a slight exaggeration, but that's what this watchman is saying. I'm so tired. I can't do this anymore. I need dawn to come. I need hope to come. And that is the hope that we live with, that we wait for. God, I can't do this anymore. It's too hard. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. But God, I am longing for you. I put my hope in you. I understand that there will be a time where you will wipe away every tear from my eye. And I wait and I long for your presence. During Advent, we look back on Christ's coming and we celebrate, while at the same time, we look forward with eager anticipation to the coming of Christ's kingdom when he returns for his people. We have mashed up the different forms of Advent that have happened throughout the centuries. We celebrate the coming of Jesus and we anticipate his birth and we celebrate, but we are people that celebrate with our eyes focused forward into what is coming. We are no longer waiting for rescue. We are rescued. And now we fix our eyes on Jesus and we walk out our rescue knowing someday that our internal inheritance is coming to us. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider Jesus. He came so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, because we possess a hope for the future that is better than anything we could possess here on earth. Are you weary today? Are you weary because you have been fighting your sin nature and you're exhausted and you can't do it anymore and you keep giving in over and over and over again even when you don't want to? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Surrender it to him and walk out your salvation and your rescue. Are you weary because what you are facing is too much and you can't fix it on your own? We live in a broken world, and we can't fix it on our own. We just can't sometimes, but we fix our eyes on Jesus, understanding that there is a future hope better than what we are walking through. We have a living hope that grows. Even when faced with hardship, hope can grow. Because it's not dependent on what we're living, it's dependent on who Jesus is. And we have to cling to that when the world doesn't make sense. We are living in the in-between. A present hope and joy of salvation and a future eternity where there is no more pain and no more suffering. And we live in the in-between, in the tension of that, fully embracing both. 
we live in the tension with our eyes fully fixed on Jesus. We celebrate and remember the baby that has came and we look forward to when he comes again. I would personally like to live in a world where there is no sickness, there is no pain, there is no homelessness, there's no fear, there's no bombs, there's no war, there's no destruction, there's no evil. I would really like to live in that world. And I will someday. Revelation 21 tells us that someday he will wipe away every tear from our eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order will have passed away. But for now, we live here with the understanding that there is hope for the future and we fix our eyes on Jesus. John 14, 26 reminds us that we weren't left on our own to walk this difficult life, but that the Holy Spirit came to be our comforter, to be our advocate, to be our guide, that he is with us, that we are not alone, that you fix your eyes on Jesus, understanding that he is fully with you. The Holy Spirit has come to give you life, to walk with you, to hold you up when you can't hold yourself. You are not alone, follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is with you. And some of you might say, well, if my only hope is a future hope, then why do I pray? Why do I intercede? Why do I spend my time on my knees asking God to change things? And it's a good question. And can I be honest? I've asked it myself. We pray because we are instructed in scripture to pray. We pray because God has invited us into that relationship with him. We pray because the Holy Spirit is with us and God is moving in ways that we don't see and we don't understand. We pray because we understand that God is active and moving while we look forward to that future rescue. He has not abandoned us in this world and said, you have hope for salvation and you have hope for tomorrow. Go and do. That's not what he said to us. You have hope for salvation. You have hope for the future. And now live your life with your eyes fixed on Jesus and pray because I hear you, because I care for you. I have sent the Holy Spirit to walk with you. This is not easy, friend, but you are not alone. We have hope. This world is hard sometimes and it is temporary. And we wait with anticipation for the day when we meet Jesus. And he washes away every tear and there is no more pain. We wait for Jesus like the people of the Old Testament were waiting for a savior. We wait for his return where the Holy Spirit gives us everything we need to endure and even, may I suggest, face it with joy. Not happiness, but with joy. But that's in a few weeks. We won't go there yet. Anna and Simeon didn't have easy lives, but they dedicated their lives to seeking God. They surrendered to the Holy Spirit and they lived with hope for a future that was promised to them. And so let's circle back, shall we, to let's live like Anna and Simeon. It's so simple, but yet so difficult. <laughs> Dedicate your life to waiting on the Lord. Surrender every part of yourself to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Fix your eyes on Jesus because his presence is with you and he has promised a hope for your future. That is the hope that we celebrate this Advent season. Hope of a baby came and hope for a future that is better than our present. 
we're going to move into a time of communion, and I think it's uh, fitting. Worship team, you can make your way back. We're going to take some time this morning, and we're going to contemplate the sacrifice of the Savior that allows us to have this hope. And we're going to take some time, and these altars at the end of communion will open them up for prayer. And there are some of you here today that need to be reminded that you have hope. There are some of you here that, like I said, are living the best versions of your life. And I would encourage you to put the focus back on Jesus. To thank him, to honor him, to reflect on him. We're going to take this time of communion and we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And we're going to point our focus to who is coming. And we will open these altars for a time of prayer. So as the worship team leads us, we're going to prepare our hearts for that. I'm just going to pray. Lord, I thank you for your presence. I thank you that you are our future hope. I thank you, God, that you are our present hope, that you are both equally, and that's not hard for you. And so I pray right now, Lord, for those of us that need hope, that you would come by the power of your Holy Spirit and surround us with hope that is beyond reason, that is beyond what we can see, that is beyond anything that makes sense, but it is hope that comes solely from you. We thank you, God, that you came as a baby in a manger that you walked this earth fully man and fully God, that you died and rose again for forgiveness of sins, that we could be right with you. We thank you, God, for your goodness, for the hope that we possess. And we fix our eyes on you, God, because you are the only one that makes sense in a broken world.